A special thanks goes out to the folks at Anchor.fm who are bringing you this podcast. Coming to you almost live from our studios in New York, this is Tom Reads Your Story. Join voice actor Tom Zania as he reads from articles, social media, past audiobook recordings, and other spoken word projects. And now, here's your host, voice actor and podcaster, Tom Zania. And thank you, as always, Mr. Announcer, for that wonderful introduction. I'm Tom Zania. Thanks for stopping by to Tom Reads Your Story. I'm glad you're here. Today, we listen to an audiobook I did from an author that I've mentioned before, John Isaac Jones. And I'll be back right after this. The afterlife is not at all what Jack Duffy had expected. A failed suicide attempt launches him into a world that tests his abilities. In this world, he learns more about himself after a lifetime of horrific decisions. The Borrowed Soul, written by Paul B. Kohler and narrated by Tom Zania. Listen to this incredible book by visiting audible.com. Hi, this is Tom Zania from Tom Reads Your Story. I'm just here to let you know that the audiobooks you hear on my podcast are ones that I recorded myself, and they're available on audible.com. Audible audiobooks number in the thousands. You'll have every type of audiobook, from romance to science fiction to sports biographies to entertainment biographies and so much more. Check out audible.com for your audiobook listening pleasure. And now... Back to the podcast. And we are back. Welcome back, everyone, to Tom Reads Your Story. Thanks for coming back. If you listened to last week's broadcast, thank you. And if you're coming for the first time, thank you. And if you're a regular listener who's returning, thank you again. Today, we are going to listen to a book that I did called Angel Unaware. And it is by a terrific author who I have narrated for several times. And his name is John Isaac Jones. Uh, I've mentioned about John Isaac Jones before. If uh, this is your first time here, uh, John Isaac Jones is an author uh, who lives down in South Florida, actually lives on Merritt Island, which is very close to Cape Canaveral. And he has written for everything, newspapers, magazines. He's written internationally in Australia and other countries. And he's really good. And I have done several of his books. The last book I did was For the Love of Daniel. This is a book called Angels Unaware, as I just said. And it's about a young man uh, named Billy. 
Billy Johnson, and I think he has used the Billy Johnson character for other titles he has written for. I'll get back to you on that one, but I think he has. It's about Billy Johnson's life as he is going into the the world of work in adulthood. Uh, he's young. He's maybe, I don't know, somewhere between 18 and 20, something like that. And he works for um, a newspaper uh, as uh, a writer. And he is going into... Um, a bit of a promotion as the book begins. His father passed away shortly before this happens. And obviously he's going through a term of, I guess, grief. And he happens upon meeting uh, a person that he is, I guess you would call um, a future mentor. And uh, this gentleman is getting on in years, and uh, he he helps Billy uh, go into uh, the type of job that he's about to get into. So without further ado, this is starting with, of course, chapter one, and we will go straight into chapter two without a break. So now, chapter one of... Angels Unaware. Angel Unaware by John Isaac Jones Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Hebrews 13.2 Chapter 1 Billy's Father Passes like a man in a daze, Billy Johnson stumbled down the hospital steps and strode across the street to the hospital parking lot. Five minutes earlier, he had been told that his father had died on the operating table after suffering a massive heart attack. The information had poured over him like a shower of ice-cold water and left a great cloud of depression flooding his very soul. He had always known that his father would die at some point, but he kept pushing it to the back of his mind year after year, hoping against hope that it would never really happen. Now, in August of 1972, his worst fears had been realized. After his mother died when he was 13, his father had become his mentor. His closest friend, his best buddy, and his confidant. When he wasn't in school, he spent every free moment with his father. They spent endless hours together on the farm, mending fences, building barns, tending to livestock, and raising crops. Until Billy went to college, the father and son were always together at night. Whether they were playing checkers, working on a farm implement, listening to the radio, or just reading. Their nights with each other were always happy times. Throughout their lives together, their single most passion had been the fishing trips they made to the little creeks and rivers in Tallapoosa and surrounding counties. As a small boy, the son would dig earthworms for bait, rig up their cane poles, and equip a tackle box. 
Then he and his father, armed with poles and bait, would slog along the river banks, looking for a place to drop their hooks. Once settled along the water's edge, the father and son would wait for hours catching perch, brim, crappie, and catfish. Many nights after their excursions, they would return to the farmhouse and cook their catch over an open fire, and then sit down to fresh fish, hush puppies, french fries, and iced tea. Those were such happy times. In later years, after his father bought a small fishing boat, the father and son would haul the vessel to the banks of the Tallapoosa River and go to their secret fishing hole, a place they had dubbed the Treetops. Some fifteen years earlier, the Tennessee Valley Authority had flooded 10,000 acres of lowlands near the river and, in the process, had covered more than 8,000 acres of standing trees. Once the forest was flooded, many of the tops of the trees jutted up above the surface of the water. In early March, when the crappy fish went on the bed, they would lay their eggs in the top limbs of the submerged trees. By mid-April, the treetops would be teeming with thousands of fat, hungry young crappy, and the father and son could fill their boat with huge one- to two-pound crappy in no time. Two months earlier, Billy, who was earning good money as a reporter with the local newspaper, had bought a brand spanking new fishing boat with all the latest features. The week after the boat was delivered, he couldn't wait to go to the treetops with his father. But the father had fallen ill and was admitted to the hospital. Now his father had passed from this world, and Billy would never have the chance to use the boat in the way he had hoped. Billy reached his car in the hospital parking lot. Once inside the car, he took a deep breath and put the keys in the ignition. As he started to turn the key, he felt a huge hollowness burrowing deeper and deeper inside of him. It was a gnawing, vicious grief. He wasn't sure if that hollowness could ever be filled. His father had been such a huge part of his life for so long. He couldn't imagine life without him. Still in a daze, Billy stared straight ahead over the tops of the other cars at the white antiseptic walls of the hospital building. Suddenly, alone and amid familiar surroundings, something inside Billy exploded, and he broke down in giant sobs of uncontrollable grief. Thirty minutes later, somewhat calmer now, Billy pulled his car into the parking lot of the newspaper complex where he was employed. As he unlocked the door to the editorial department, he could see that the office was dark and seemingly empty. On Saturdays, the morning shift would put the early edition to bed by 12.30, and everyone would be out of the office by 1 p.m. On this particular Saturday, the only person in the darkened office was Charles Charlie Ryan, the newspaper's aging Sunday editor. As Billy walked in, Charles Ryan looked up curiously from his desk. He could see Billy had been weeping. Are you okay? the older man asked. I just lost my father, Billy replied. Charlie, not answering at first, peered at him sympathetically. Sorry to hear that 
the older man said finally. Thanks, Charlie. Are you going to have an obituary? Billy nodded. Nobody can write it better than you, the older man said. Saying nothing, the young reporter sat down at the desk across from the Sunday editor's desk, put a piece of paper into the typewriter, and began typing. Robert William Johnson, he began. A longtime farmer and merchant in Tallapoosa County passed away at a local hospital Saturday after a brief illness. Mr. Johnson, who was 71, was the father of Billy, a reporter from the Hamilton Courier and the husband of the late Virginia Johnson. Funeral services will be held Monday at Fern Collier Funeral Home in Hamilton. Finally, having finished writing, he took the single sheet of paper out of the typewriter. As he reread the copy for typos, huge tears rolled down his cheeks, and he thought about how stale and generic obituaries were. It was as if he couldn't break through the barriers of journalistic objectivity to say what he really felt in his heart for his father. Finally, having reread the copy, he got up from the desk and placed the single sheet of paper in the basket on the Sunday editor's desk. Without looking at it, the older man took the copy out of the basket. I'm sure it's fine, Charlie said. I'll put it on the front page. Thanks, Charlie. With that, Billy turned and walked back out of the newsroom. Once he was outside again, a huge new wave of private grief swept through him, and he broke down again in a torrent of tears. Again, he could feel a huge clot of unbearable grief forming inside of him. It was a grief he wasn't sure he would ever lose. At the services two days later, he remembered how much he hated funerals. He really didn't want to be there among all the public weeping and wailing. He wanted to be alone with his father, just the two of them, to do something special for him. So he asked the funeral director if he could be a pallbearer. But the director, who had also been his science teacher in junior high, said it wasn't traditional for an immediate family member to carry the casket. If I may say so, the director said, it just doesn't look right. Immediate family members should be at the graveside. Billy didn't argue. So during the funeral services, Billy stood by quietly with his aunts and uncles and cousins in the family area and listened quietly as the minister spoke all the standard funerary words over his father. For Billy, it all seemed so hollow and meaningless. How he wished that humankind could simply allow their fellow human beings to bear their grief in private rather than making it a public spectacle for all the world to see. It was as if a funeral was some sort of public proof that the deceased person had been loved in life. His grief for his father was something very personal, very private, and a public display somehow defiled the sanctity of that love. Standing at the altar, Billy watched as his father's family and friends filed past the open casket. There was his Aunt Hilda, his father's oldest sister, who hadn't seen his father in 18 years, wailing the loudest of all.
There was Abner Hames, the nearby neighbor who had ruthlessly cheated his father in a land deal, looking very sad and forlorn. The young reporter knew that if his father were alive to witness the mockery and hypocrisy of all this, he would laugh out loud. After the funeral services, Billy followed the coffin and the family to the graveside and watched as the casket was lowered into the ground and the grave filled and covered with fresh earth. Then, finally, after he had shaken hands and said goodbye to all his relatives and family friends, he went home and got drunk. Chapter 2 Charlie the following Monday morning, Billy reported to the office bright and early. He wanted to throw himself into his work, get on with his life, and try to get over the loss of his father. After the obligatory condolences from his fellow workers, the city editor told him that the executive editor wanted to see him. How long you've been with us now? The executive editor began. Almost three years he replied. You've proven yourself as a reporter, the executive editor noted. Don't you think it's time you learn desk work? What do you have in mind? Billy asked. We need a backup on the Sunday desk. Aren't you happy with Charlie? The executive editor hesitated before answering. We're happy with him, he continued, but some Sundays are better than others. He still likes to take a nip. On those days, he tends to be slow. He's almost 70, you know. The young reporter looked at his executive editor. You want me to be Charlie's understudy? He asked. The executive editor nodded. That's how you move up with the company, he added. That's what I want, the young reporter replied. So that afternoon, Billy began his apprenticeship as the newspaper's associate Sunday editor under the tutelage of Charlie Ryan. From the first, the young reporter and the older man became fast friends. I always liked to take a nip, Charlie told his pupil. When I was a young reporter in Birmingham, everybody would go for a few drinks after the shift was finished. Some people can take a drink and walk away. Me? I wanted to stick my mouth under the spigot. He would say with a smile. Some mornings, I wanted to put it on my cornflakes. One time, I got on top of it, Charlie said. And for four years, I didn't touch it. During all that time, I didn't have a single moment of happiness. Now, I like to take a little nip to remind me of what once was. Charlie had been employed at the Hamilton Courier for almost 15 years, but his drinking proved to be a problem. For many years, he had been the paper's state editor and had roamed the mountains and valleys of North Alabama, covering town hall meetings, writing human interest stories, and doing photo spreads. In the mid-60s, after Charlie had been state editor for eight years, he went on a drinking binge and disappeared for four days. When he returned to the office, 
There was a new state editor, and Charlie had been demoted to Sunday editor. As a newspaper man, Charlie was from the old school of the 30s and 40s, and it showed in everything he did, especially in headlines. Charlie used words in headlines that were common usage in the early 1900s, words like halcyon, salubrious, and salad days. In a headline, if Charlie needed a shorter word for planned, he would use set. If he needed a shorter word for announced, he would use told. Charlie said that once, when he was a young man and just beginning to learn desk work. He had a story about a tiddlywinks tournament that was being held locally. It was only a five-paragraph story, Charlie said but the editor wanted three one-word lines with not more than seven letters per word. I worked and worked. It was tough, but I finally got it. Billy reflected for a moment. You'll never guess what I came up with, Charlie said. There is no way you can get tiddlywinks into seven letters. I give up, Billy said finally. Winks, turny told. Charlie said proudly with a sly smile. Charlie's greatest moment as a newspaper man came in 1945 when he was working for a major daily along the South Carolina coast. FDR had been vacationing on an island nearby, and the editor asked Charlie to go down and try for an interview. I didn't think I had a chance in hell of getting an interview with FDR, Charlie said. He had been sick, he was in a wheelchair, and he had all kinds of security. But I went to the hotel's front desk anyway and told them who I was and what I wanted. After a while, one of FDR's assistant press secretaries came out and introduced himself. He said that the president couldn't do an interview at that moment. However, if I could be at the airport around 3 p.m., the president could spare me 15 to 20 minutes. I told him, Charlie said with a big laugh, that I thought I could make it. <laughs> Charlie said that when the Secret Service ushered him into a waiting room at the airport and he saw FDR, it was the greatest moment of his life. Now, Charles, Charlie proudly quoted FDR as calling him by his first name. You know that our troops must win this great war in Europe. The Germans and their allies must be beaten back from Western Europe and North Africa, and the Japanese must be whipped in the Pacific. This war will be won, no matter what the cost. Charlie said the editor put a banner headline on his story in big, bold letters. This war will be won and attached his photo and byline. Charlie said he had the story framed, and it had been hanging on his living room wall for 26 years. Nothing made the young reporter happier than getting a big laugh out of Charlie, and he learned quickly that Charlie loved physical humor. There was a paper cutter at the proofreader's desk that was supposed to trim the edges of 
page proofs, and early on, Billy noticed that he had to be careful of his tie when he used it. If he wasn't minding his tie, the end of it could easily slip under the blade, and the cutter would whack it in two pieces when he trimmed page proofs. One Saturday night, Billy wore an old tie to work. As he and Charlie were rushing around to meet the midnight deadline, they took a page one proof to the paper cutter together. As Charlie watched, Billy put the bottom of the page into the cutter and then deliberately leaned over far enough to get the end of his tie under the blade. When he slammed down the blade, the end of his tie was instantly whacked off. Billy, examining the blunt end of his tie, pretended to be angry. Meanwhile, Charlie burst one of the buttons on his shirt in raucous, uncontrollable laughter. While newspapers were his first love, fishing was the second, and Charlie made no bones of the fact that he loved to fish for crappy in the early spring. Even if he wasn't catching anything, he loved fishing. God covered the earth with three-quarters water, Charlie would say jokingly. That means God meant for man to spend three-fourths of his time fishing. Then Charlie would look impishly over his glasses. Don't it say that somewhere in the Bible? He would ask with a sly smile. If it doesn't, it should. Finally, after six months, Billy had learned every phase of desk work. He could lay out pages, write headlines, select and crop photos, write captions, and guide the composing staff through the process of building each and every page of the Sunday newspaper. Thanks to Charlie, he had learned all the fine points of the craft. He learned that a headshot should never look off the edge of a page. He learned how to air out a page to make dark borders or large types stand out conspicuously. Most of all, he learned how to balance a page so the reader's eye movement would be slow and smooth from top to bottom. He learned to stagger headlines on a page that had no photos in order to break up the eye movement. His apprenticeship under Charlie had been a truly great experience, and Billy felt that he was now, thanks to Charlie, a complete newspaper man. And you have just heard chapter one and two of Angels Unaware by John Isaac Jones, a very good writer, I believe. And that should do it for this episode. If you enjoyed your visit today, please tell your friends. Be sure to email me at tomreadyourstory at yahoo.com or call the dedicated line for comments and questions at 929 Two six zero nineteen fifty two. As always, thanks Anchor.fm for the chance to have an ongoing podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Until next time, stay safe and take care. For more information on Tom's availability for your e-learning, commercial, or audiobook project, 
visit his website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. We hope you visit us again soon for another episode of Tom Reads Your Story.